Hi, I'm Rima, and you're listening to Think Like a Scientist. In this show, we break down barriers between scientific thinking and modern-day actions. We do this by interviewing groundbreaking leaders for the result of providing you real-life tools and experiences that you can use to bring positive impact. Hi everyone, this is Rima, and today we are going to welcome Faviola Datis. She's a scientist, author, model, and founder of NeuroReality, an Amsterdam-based innovative company that uses virtual reality for cognitive rehabilitation following a brain injury. Faviola felt that rehabilitation should be more focused on training cognitive problems rather than the acceptance strategies. NeuroReality combines principles from neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and gamification. Faviola had no ordinary career path. She was in the modeling industry for 15 years while modeling for names like Puma and Versace. Faviola got her bachelor's in psychology at the University of Nevada, a research master's of cognitive neuropsychology at the University of Amsterdam, and has done a research master's thesis in cognitive neuropsychology at the University of Oxford. Faviola also edited and co-authored the book Aging and Dementia, and has presented her research at conferences around the world. She won a large investment for her startup company, NeuroReality, and she's now currently self-funding her research at VU University in Amsterdam as a PhD candidate and lecturer at the University of Utrecht in Cognitive Neuroscience. Her research focuses on traditional and virtual reality neurorehabilitation in patients with stroke, dementia, and traumatic brain injury. Though Faviola had no ordinary career path, it was also not an easy one. Let's welcome Faviola Datis. Hi, I'm happy to be here with you, Rima. How have you been doing so far? Right now, I'm stressed, <laughs> tired, <laughs> while everyone is on summer vacation. I'm oh, working yeah. still, and it's always difficult to get a hold of people to do the things that you need to do. Everyone is messaging mm. you back saying, I'm on vacation at the moment, and that's really tricky. So... <laughs> Oh, and you're gonna hear you're gonna hear probably my my Rockweiler Kenji in the background. Okay, she's um, gonna add a lot of value to the podcast. It's really wonderful to connect with people like yourself who are also really passionate and inspired by what they're doing. And also, I've also seen that you've done so many things throughout your career, and it's not just science. I've seen you've done modeling, and I was just very curious. I wanted to ask, you know, what gravitated you towards modeling and what kept you wanting to continue despite of, you know, the harsh industry? That's a very good question. <laughs> what gravitated me towards modeling? Nothing. <laughs> I was a tomboy. I had zero desire to be a model. I remember coming home one day with, uh, I was already playing American football. I was on a team uh, then, and I still am now. And I had cuts and bruises and scrapes all over me. And one of my friend's dad said, you know, if you keep playing like that, you're never going to be able to be a model or anything. And I looked at him and I was like, why would I want to be a model? And I was, honestly, I still <laughs> remember, from, I was probably like 10 years old or something. And as fate would have it, uh, my mom, my mother was a model when she was younger. And I got scouted when I was a teenager. I started off working in Europe. And then when I went to the States, I signed in Los Angeles and it sort of took off from there. I modeled internationally for more than 15 years, which is crazy. Wow. I'm 36 now. Um, so I, I started really when I was very young, some, like some of my very first things, probably a lot of our listeners won't 
know of, but like Fisher Price roller skates and things like that. When I was actually a toddler, I was doing those, those commercials and all sorts of, all sorts of TV show extra stuff. But then when I was a teenager, I was actually scouted, um, doing a, a runway shows, uh, for, it was for a department store in the States called Neiman Marcus, which is one of the high-end stores. And there was a scout in the audience and he asked if I would be interested in working internationally during, um, during the fashion week circuit. So at the time I was enrolled uh, in an early study program at uh, UNLV, University of Nevada. And what that meant was that I attended university two years early. So I was allowed to basically complete all of the classes that any other normal student would complete at their bachelor's, but I had to maintain a certain GPA in order to continue um, my studies and then be admitted as a normal university student. So I was literally um, at the beginning of my model modeling career, I remember flying back and forth between school at the end of at the end of class. I would fly out to New York or Los Angeles and I would go and do shoots and then or runway um, and come back and just be absolutely exhausted. It would it was something that allowed me to pay for my education. It allowed me to travel. It allowed me to do a lot of exciting stuff. And the the truth of it was that when you really like boil it down, um, the critiques that we receive in modeling and the thick skin that you need to build to have this criticism at you constantly because generally people have sort of look look in mind and you have to learn not to take it personally if you're not that look. Mm-hmm. Um, but you will get ripped apart right in front of your face. You'll be told you're too fat, you're too skinny, you're too this, you're too that, um, like you're, you're uh, a mannequin or something, which you are essentially. That's, that's what your job is, is to sell a product. Um, I always liked it working with the creatives and that's sort of what kept me in the industry. I really liked also that I was able to interact with and meet all of these high level executives that worked for the brands that I was modeling for. So while I was modeling, I wasn't just taking pictures and, um, and doing, you know, doing what you would typically be expecting a model to do. I was interacting with all of these individuals and looking at how they pivoted their brands from season to season, how they marketed the strategies that they used depending upon which market that they were entering. So obviously you're not going to introduce the same product into a European store as you would into a store in Japan. So these different things uh, were all sorts of aspects of, of what I learned um, while I was traveling and doing this. And it was, a, it was really a, a fun ride. I had had some great contracts um, and I can thank a lot of brands for helping put me through my education. So that's, that was definitely one driving force. I never, yeah, I never had a desire to model. That really, <laughs> it really just, it just happened to be honest. Um, and aside from that, I had a, a singing career. I was briefly signed with Sony and BMG when I was 17. And 
this was during the time of Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera and all of the, the pop stars just coming out. And I had this much more edgier sound and look and all the lawyers that I was working with and the managers wanted to tone me down. And I didn't like that at all. So I had a question from my agency, my modeling agency one day, do you want to be a model or do you want to be a singer? Because your careers are taking off in both directions at the moment. And I was so fed up with people bossing me around in the music industry. <laughs> um, probably I would have learned later on that actually you go through that and then you get to sort of curve your own path out as you look at Miley Cyrus, knowing that she you know, progressed from Hannah Montana to what she is now. But at that, at that particular time, I had no passion for modeling. So it didn't hurt my soul, let's say, in any kind of a way. It didn't really stress me out. It was just something like, okay, you're going to pay me to travel around the world. I'm going to put clothes on for you and I'm going to learn a bunch of stuff while I'm doing it. Yeah. Do you I think that sounds really weird? <laughs> yeah. Do you think that like the fact that you work in, you continued your education in science and you had this passion for science did you think that that kept you sane throughout all of that? I mean, honestly, yes. I wish that I had photos um, to share when we're on a podcast, but <laughs> my friends would laugh at me because I would literally be uh, at a job sitting there and studying, like just sitting there and studying because I was doing at that time um, remote learning Blackboard the Blackboard system was already available and it was much more widely used in the United States. Now it's being used everywhere. So I was capable of still traveling, doing most of my exams and it really sucks because of the time difference. I would have proctored exams that were usually in the middle of the night. I remember in Tokyo uh, during fashion week, having to go to an internet cafe because in the apartment that I was staying at, they, they put you in model apartments, which are like sort of like dormitories for models. Um, the internet had failed. So I was constantly studying the entire time and it did help me keep my eye on the prize, let's say, when I made the decision to transition full-time and take a, what was supposed to be gap year, but ended up gap six years into uh, my modeling venture. I remember university counselor saying to me, you are the type of person that will come back to university. And that that is indeed what was always something that was in the back of my head. Um, I have a journal from when I was eight years old that I wrote, I want to be a scientist. So, oh, so you, that, is, that is indeed something that has kept me sane. But my friends used to make fun of me. We would be, be out at nightclubs even, and I would have my my books on neuroanatomy with me and be studying like underneath the table and drinking tea like sneakily while everyone else is partying but you know it was it was an interesting as you said it was an unconventional way that that I've sort of gone about my career. So you knew you wanted to go into neuroscience at such a young age? I knew that I knew at such a young age that I wanted to go into science. I had great interest for the brain I thought that actually I thought I wasn't smart enough to study neuroscience. I, I think a lot of people don't give themselves enough credit or realize that you don't have to be the smartest or the best or the most talented. You just have to have tenacity and perseverance and drive. So I, um, I switched several times. I watched my best friend go through the preparations for 
his MD. And for me, it was really, it was between doing an MD or doing a PhD in neuroscience. And yeah, after watching him study for the MCATs and helping him study for the MCATs, it started to become more clear to me that the path that I would take um, doing that type of education was not going to be anything research or discovery-based. It was going to be, this is what you learn. This is what we prescribe. This is how we do it. Otherwise, we have a lot of insurance uh, that we have to take out for malpractice lawsuits. So for me, I was like, I want to discover. I want to be able to work on research and help make a bigger impact um, on society as opposed to solely the patient group that I'm working with. Not to say like doctors, like amazing, amazing, amazing work that they do. But going back to your original question, it's sort of, you know, I remember even stints of thinking about marine biology and because I love the ocean, um, thinking about whether or not I would be an environmental scientist. Uh, there, there were so many different things that sort of led up to it. Then it was biologist for a very, very long time. It was, I'm going to be a biologist. And I didn't really know what that meant. That was all throughout high school. Uh, I'm going to be a biologist. Um, then, as then as I got more sophisticated into the knowledge of neuroscience, it was very clear for me that neuroscience was exactly what I wanted to study. And you also said you finished earlier, right? High school, two years earlier. I did. I I finished two years earlier. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. So you went into university and then that's when they said you had to maintain it that GPA and at the same time was that when you also started modeling as well when you were in university I was, I was modeling simultaneous to that yep um so for those two years I maintained that GPA and then that was when I had the conversation with my counselor about because as I said I was exhausted from flying back and forth literally between classes and shoots and it was just far too much for me so we decided together conglomerately that it was okay for me to do this remotely. I actually, I did get permission from my department to do my degree abroad mostly. And it was, it was tricky, but it was totally doable. That's really cool. And also like speaking of that, I know like not many scientists are models. Do you think that being a model did like add added to your career in some way? Like did the things that you learn add in some way or or even vice versa did you being like a scientist or learning you know the things in science add anything to you as a model oh yes uh firstly i want to give a shout out to my my girl michelle easter who works for nasa and i oh, met wow. her on a conde nas folk shoot so there you go uh we we're not a common breed but we're there uh one of my researchers um caroline she is one of the, let's say, like the freshest new faces out currently. She just did Valentino show. And now that COVID is, you know, a little bit different, um, she's, she's had to slow down her travels. But it's not as uncommon as you think, actually. And um, for models to be very intelligent and individualistic. So what I learned, as I was saying before, uh, was really about how to have a thick skin, take criticism, understand that a lot of the time it's not personal. It's even, even so uh, if someone has this particular image in their mind, they're going to project that onto you. And if you don't fit into that image of what they're projecting onto you, 
then it's always going to be tough and you have to build a thick skin for that. And as a, I think that that goes in, in both directions. So I learned that from modeling, but then I learned how to apply that in science. And then the science, like the scientific method that I was learning along the way was also helping me in modeling because it gave me ways to persuade individuals, even if I wasn't necessarily their, their look that they were going for, that I was the one that they wanted to book because <laughs> I was going to be the right person to sell that brand for them. So there was definitely a lot of analysis and analytical thinking that went into that. And then of course, bringing into my modeling aspects of understanding how how brands pivot and do all of those things that I had previously talked about, how different fashion waves happen. And that was just something that sort of seems disconnected in my career, but actually really wasn't. I, I was embarrassed to tell people that I was a model when I first started my career as a scientist, but um, now I embrace it. And yeah, I just embrace that, it. Uh, well, yeah, I think that that's sort of the, the point, right? We have all these stigmas and mm -hmm. that scientists can't be, um, can't be feminine or you know portray their their girly side and that was something I certainly wanted to challenge later on but in the beginning I was very shy about it I had been told by multiple people in a dogmatic ivory tower setting that it was my job not to be a distraction in the lab and so mm -hmm. it was really clear to me from the start that I should be downplaying my looks and doing things to make sure that I wasn't necessarily being seen as a quote unquote, like pretty girl, you know? So, which is unfortunate because now we're sort of breaking these stigmas and understanding that you can be whatever you want and just be as your, yeah, just be yourself basically. And that that's just fine. But um, I did get flack. There's, there's a few, there's still been recent times where I've gotten flack and people have called me out for, for nasty things saying you should just go back to modeling. People are hardcore. Oh my God. That's I'm crazy. not, I'm not going to name the specific yeah, individuals who, who have said things like that to me, but, um, even within the past three months, I've heard things like that. People are always trying to trying wow. to break you down. And you're already like, you've done your modeling career. You're not like, it's already, no, yeah. I'm, and it's, you I'm, still I'm keep getting that. Every That's now and crazy. again, I, I mean, the last shoot that I did, I think was two years ago. Um, so no, this is, I mean, it's, and it was really only just because my agency had a direct booking for me and it's a it's not a lucrative industry necessarily, but the particular contract was lucrative enough that it was worthwhile for me to to take it and help supplement my wow. my income a bit. But yeah, one sec. Kenji is crying at us. Oh, okay. I thought I thought that that was like emails or something. I didn't know that was a dog. <laughs> I didn't know he, it was him crying. I'm like trying to like focus, and I've got my dog on the floor crying at me. Oh, he wants to be a part of it. <laughs> he wants to be a part of it. He well, wants, he wants of it. attention. He's, he's an attention hound, literally. Oh, yeah. But I think it's important to address that. So thank you for even like 
for speaking about that and allowing yourself to be vulnerable because it's important to address things like this. Uh, like you said, there is this stigma and there we haven't to at least be able to address it and shed light on it and, you know, allow the people here listening to understand really what it is going through uh, being a scientist and, you know, just really being your authentic self, you know, not because there isn't really any labels, you know, it's not okay. Scientist model It's just being yourself. It's just being your authentic self. And, that's really what it, what it is about. And also going back to when you were talking about you finished high school two years earlier and you said that, you know, being autistic helped you speed through high school. Maybe. I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> to be honest, I'm not sure if that helped me or hindered me. Um, I had a I had a rough patch through through high school um, where I wasn't even sure, actually, because of my absence record and it was, I was still undiagnosed at that point. It's very common for females to receive their diagnosis later on in life, even though it had been proposed uh, a couple of times previously that I might have autism. It was told to my parents by my teachers when I was in elementary school. And then again, when I was 11 years old by a psychologist, but we never followed up on it because I was very upset by that. Actually, I didn't understand much about it and I didn't have the psychoeducation to know what it meant to have autism. So in high school, I had an absence record of 60%. I, I mean, it was a very rigorous international baccalaureate program. And so there are attendance requirements and it was very unclear, even though I had graduated with honors, whether or not I was going to be able to continue um, to receive the diploma. So there's two different parts of the International Baccalaureate program. You do your first four years and then your last two years. When I moved to the United States from the Netherlands where I was in international school, I, um, I was really lucky. I actually had not expected to receive that diploma based upon my absence record and not being able to really talk to or explain to anyone what I was going through was really difficult. People saw I was struggling, but I think that it was more at that point a hindrance because I just didn't understand why I was so different. It was, it was really uh, clear to me also that I had very specific niche interests that weren't necessarily the same as my peers. I had to do things in a way that was very different from the way that my peers did. I didn't think about things the same way. I thought about things like a puzzle and how to put all these pieces of a puzzle together in order to view a full picture. It was a huge struggle for me during those times because you're really not allowed the freedom that you're allowed in university to sort of um, create your own path you're really expected to fall into line in the way that the high school teachers would like you to. Now, of course, understandable, you have a bunch of rowdy teenagers. But for me, that led to um, finishing, finishing my work as meticulously as I could, but I was still having a lot of meltdowns, um, which is when you have over, uh, over sensory um, stimulation and basically an overload of your senses at that point you're oversensitized so I would ha have meltdowns on a regular basis and I wouldn't be able to go to my classes so even that being said um, 
it was still something I was really excited about when I received my diploma and saw that I came to the United States and I went to high school two days there. They had me in all, uh, I was supposed to go into the 11th grade in the American system. And they had me in all 12th grade honors classes. And within the first two days, it was so clear that this, uh, the teachers were like, you've literally done all of this like three years ago. So why are you still here? Do you feel that you're gonna miss anything from your social life being in, being in, uh, in high school? And I was like, no. I've gone to enough proms already. I'd been to like four proms. I had done all, you know, all of the stuff that I, I felt I wanted to do. I'd been a student representative. And at that point, I was like, no, what's the other option? That was when they introduced the, the university early studies program to me. So I just skipped those two years and went right into university. And also I wanna uh, shed light on for the listeners. Um, that you have high functioning autism, which, which is a different, which uh, if the audience doesn't know, there's like a spectrum that autistic, you can correct me if I'm wrong, there is a spectrum that autistic individuals fit in, and it can range from high functioning autism to severe autism. And um, high functioning autism, you, you process information differently, but you're still able to communicate as other individuals do. And yeah, and that's, that's about right. I know that that have autism often don't like to use labels like high or low functioning. We okay. talk about verbal, nonverbal. Um, that's I, I generally do tend to refer to myself as high functioning because I have a separate diagnosis on top of autism as being, um, well, it's not really a diagnosis, but it goes along with my autism of being pervasively intelligent, which might sound like a nice thing, but it's not actually. <laughs> it really can be troublesome for your brain constantly to be computing all of these different things at one time. Um, but in general, you are correct. It's a spectrum disorder. And what it involves typically is a, we were, we perceive the world through our senses and individuals with autism have a different a perception of the world around us based upon the way that we receive information to our senses because our brains are structured differently than a neurotypical individuals. So high functioning is generally a label, like you said, that's given to people that are more typically um, able to function in society, do whatever they need to do. A big part of that for me is masking. And that, that has helped me a lot with regards to having been a model before you learn to turn the tears on, turn them off, do whatever you need to do to, to get that emotion across. And there'll be plenty of times where I'm having a hard time and you would then consider me very low functioning because I can become nonverbal. I can have such a bad meltdown or a shutdown, which is the, the opposite, just becoming almost catatonic and not able to move based upon so much sensory input that it, you know, it would not be fair at that point if you look at me to say this is a high functioning individual. You would look at me and you would you wouldn't recognize the, the person that you're speaking with right now. Um, it's a very interesting thing that, as you said, this is a spectrum disorder that even individuals that fall on one place in the spectrum can still move along that spectrum and 
I know other individuals with, with autism who are also quote unquote high functioning who sort of agree with this because we all have these moments where there, there are these very dramatic breakdowns that show you you're not necessarily the same as your counterparts who are who are neurotypical. Neurotypical is just a, a term that um, that we use usually to refer to people that don't have psychiatric uh, disorders. Mm-hmm. And like when you were first diagnosed, uh, how was how was that experience? Was it like did you feel relieved or was it you know overwhelming for you? It was both. Um, it was sort of a eureka moment, actually, how it came about. It was during my work uh, at Oxford, where two girls from my group, two women from my group, had done a presentation on the differences between male and females with autism and how they presented. And as I was listening to the conversation, I was like, are they talking about me? Like it really like resonated so much. And I went and I spoke with them and uh, endearingly when I, I was like, you know, the profile that you guys are talking about with regards to a female that has autism, as opposed to a male that has autism, it really resonates with me. And they like laughed endearingly and they're like, you have autism, dude. Did you not know that? <laughs> I was like, no. Um, and they're, you know, they're like, they're like, we, we can't say that for sure, but I would potentially go to your doctor and see if you can get a diagnosis um, or discuss with them because I was still struggling. Um, I do still struggle. I, I, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a challenge every single day, but when I first received my diagnosis and it was quite a process to get it first things first, a lot of the time females are put up for borderline personality disorder testing because it is less understood how females are capable and now now better understood um, of masking all the time. And everyone wears a mask, but especially females with autism are very good at masking and copying. We're social creatures. And for me, it was as easy as I was getting teased so much when I was young that I watched what the popular kids did and I copied them. It was very, you know, it was really like a, an actual decision that I, that I made. It wasn't just like a, something that, you know, normal people do and they absorb the cultures around them. It's just like a concrete decision. Like, okay, this is how these people act. This is how I'm going to act. So it goes undetected. I did the borderline personality tests, even though I said multiple times that I did not believe that that was the correct diagnosis for me. And immediately after that testing, they said, no, that is not the correct diagnosis for you. We're going to send you for testing for autism. But thank you. This is what I asked for to begin with. But it was the testing uh, process in general takes some time, which is nice because they don't just bombard you, um, which would be a lot for for someone like myself to go through and be confronted with some of these issues. And afterwards, I I indeed did feel relief. I felt like I finally had a way to express to people why I was so different. And even though it's just a label, it wasn't just the label to me. It was something that explained to me that I wasn't crazy. I felt like I was crazy my whole life. And 
I'm like, oh, I'm not crazy. I just have a completely different structure to my brain than most people do. So that was quite a relief. And then um, it can be overwhelming too. There were parts of it that were sad, like why wasn't this detected earlier? I would have been able to live with far less struggles if this had been detected earlier. I often uh, gave the analogy to people when I first got my diagnosis that I felt like I had been trying to fix a problem with a hammer that needed a screwdriver. And now I had those tools in my toolbox. And so I was actually able to figure out a little bit better what to do. And I don't think it should be stigmatized um, that we receive healthcare just the same way with doctors for physical issues as we do for mental problems. So I regularly see a psychologist and I discuss and find techniques that work for me in order to balance the overstimulation that I experience that could lead to a potential meltdown or shutdown. And how has uh, being autistic added to you as a scientist compared to neurotypical scientists for, I guess we say, I, I, I mean, it's hard for me to say because I'm not neurotypical, so I don't know what goes on inside you guys. <laughs> but for me, from um, from what I guess my the people that know me the closest um, would probably say again, like everything that I do is like puzzle pieces, and I'm constantly shifting from one creative thought to another and thinking about how do we solve this problem in a way that is methodological. So instead of just looking at the whole picture, I have trouble doing that. Um, I can really focus in on details and be extraordinarily detail-oriented, which then in building up all, it's Kenji again, <laughs> in building up all of these different smaller components of different parts of the research that I'm interested in investigating or data that I'm looking at, I can then get a full picture. And sometimes it's really as simple as like, oh, there's just one puzzle piece missing and it fits in and then I get the full picture and all of a sudden things are things are clicking together. Oh, that's really cool. I'm gonna pause for a second. Gee. <laughs> My 65 kilogram baby monster. Who yeah, he's is huge. He wants to ruin the flow of our podcast. No, he's actually adding to the flow. It's he's really he's a 65 kilogram uh Rottweiler that I, I rescued and rehabilitated. Um he's not officially allowed from the uh, municipality to be registered as my help dog, but he's recognized by the police and also by my psychologist as my official help dog. So if I'm having a meltdown, for example, he he knows what to do. He'll come and he'll help me. And he'll, That's um, it is, it's pretty amazing. The emotional capacity that he has um, for just even understanding what to do. I hadn't trained him initially. He intuitively knew sort of how to comfort me when I was having a meltdown. And then I would praise him and start reinforcing those behaviors so that he knew what to do and that he was a really good boy for doing those things. Um, so, and it, I mean, it, it's, it's confronting to tell people, but I really think we should break stigmas about this. People who have autism can have self-injurious behaviors and it's not at all intentional. It's something that you really do not want. It's embarrassing afterwards. It's scary. It's frightening. 
and uh, what Kenji makes sure that I do, what's very typical, you'll often see what you would, what you would highlight is low, lower functioning individuals with autism or nonverbal individuals with autism doing things like hitting their heads or, um, or rocking back and forth and, and slamming, you know, slamming the back of their head into a wall, things, things like that. You don't even notice you have a different pain tolerance also having autism, by the way, our pain pathways are different. So we perceive a lot less pain than other individuals. My pain threshold is incredibly high, but he knows to put his head in between whatever it is that I'm trying to do that might be harmful. And he makes sure that, that I'm okay when I'm, when I'm mm-hmm. at my work. And I'm so glad that you have him with you. That's amazing. I am very glad too. I'm not happy now that he's like, he's happy and laying here with us. And <laughs> he's, he's cool now that he's joined the conversation. So, so is it fair to say that, you know, autism is really, it's just a spectrum. There really is no label and it's just a spectrum. Is it fair to say it that? Is. It is because we used to have different, we used to differentiate, um, autism and Asperger's and Asperger's was more thought to be these, you know, highly gifted individuals with autism that are verbal, they're typical like Sheldon on, you know, um, on the big bang theory, this kind of, this kind of portrayal that's, that is, that can be a very typical male presentation of autism um, or Asperger's. But then what was decided was that as I was explaining, people that might have been diagnosed with Asperger's can still have extraordinary meltdowns or shutdowns or issues that lead them to, in certain aspects of their life, be lower functioning. So while I can tackle a 17-hour workday without exhaustion, going to the grocery store for me with that amount of stimulation there and all of the choices and all of the colors and all of the sounds and smells I could literally like, there's been times where I've literally walked out of a grocery store crying because I didn't know what to do with myself. I was so overstimulated. So, you know, there's, there's all of these different uh, aspects to the spectrum, but I think you're absolutely fair in saying it is just a spectrum. Thank you for, for sharing your experiences with me and the people listening, because I really do believe that it's important to shed light on this and address this because it's, Yeah. So thank you for that. Thank you for allowing me to. I think it's really unfortunate that it is so stigmatized because if you have a physical ailment, no one would give you any uh, second thought about being sympathetic towards having cancer or diabetes or any of these other issues that you know you might experience physically. But when you have a mental health issue, it's very frequently stigmatized. A lot of people don't want to talk about what they experience when they go through these. I'm only touching the tip of the iceberg on some of the stuff that I go through, but I do think that it's important to bring the discussion to the forefront because the more that you do that, the more open people are going to feel. I just did, um, I just finished teaching one of my courses um, at the university, the course I developed, Kickstart Your Career. And I dedicate two days to basically discussing mental health and how to bring your value system um, and your well-being into your career and make sure that that's aligned. And I start off with telling my story about things that I experience and that I go through. 
And that allows for everyone else to feel that it's a safe space for them to also be able to open up. I think that that's really important because if you don't create that environment, then people are just going to stay bottled up and we're not going to have a society that is functioning together and learning together because I learn a lot from people that um, that have autism, that don't have autism, that have ADHD, that have anxiety disorders, that have personality disorders. Everyone has something to teach you. So we shouldn't stigmatize these, these types of, um, of concerns. I think that it's what makes you unique and there's no shame in it. Exactly. There is there really isn't, and we really should be talking more about it. And I admire you for your strength. So thank you for really allowing yourself to be vulnerable. And the work that you do is incredible. So that's amazing. Thank you. And I also found out that you initially started Neurareality because you really wanted to fund your PhD. And I was just... <laughs> I was Crazy just, idea. Yeah. And I was just like curious, was the idea of creating this startup um, utilizing virtual reality and all that for stroke patients was it something that you had in mind before or beforehand or like how did it come about so there's a few different ways in which this came about um, people ask me that all the time and it's not an easy direct story um, my dad firstly had a brain tumor when I was young and he had severe cognitive problems from that but when you're 11 years old, you don't really know what that means. You just like, dad doesn't remember things the same way. Dad doesn't act the same way. He's really agitated. He can't pay attention. So I was really confused about that. And we were living in Vancouver, Canada and had to fly to Zurich uh, as we'd seen doctor after doctor that couldn't help him. And he needed to receive specialized care. Uh, second part was that my grandmother lived in rural British Columbia had experienced a stroke, and this was later on in my life. Um, and she was still complaining about, again, cognitive issues that a patient doesn't say cognition usually. It's not within their range of, of um, general vocabulary in their everyday lives. They're not going to come to you and say, I have cognitive problems. <laughs> More like a patient will come in and say, I'm I'm nervous to drive my car right now. I still don't feel comfortable on public transport. Crossing the street is difficult for me. Remembering my grocery list is difficult. Those were all the things that my grandmother was telling me. And I kept trying to convey that she needed to explain to her doctor that things were progressively getting worse and worse. So what was happening um, was that she was having transistemic attacks. These are TIAs, mini strokes, sometimes called. And unfortunately, because the closest specialized care that she had was about three hours away by travel, and it was difficult for her to get there on her own, it was a last stroke that had her, um, that basically ended her life. And had there been any kind of remote monitoring, uh, any kind of indication, of what was going on and that she had been deteriorating in terms of her functions, then we would have potentially been able to save her life. Now, maybe not, right? But there would have at least been an indication that there should be some someone intervening at the, at the present time in order to 
improve the continuity of care that she had received. And moving on to Oxford, I was working on the translation of traditional neuropsychological tasks into digitalized solutions. And I was surprised firstly um, how receptive uh, people that were that were diagnosed with um, at that time it was it was only stroke. Now I'm working with with all of um, all sorts of acquired brain injuries. But how many stroke survivors kept saying to me over and over again, I'm still experiencing cognitive complaints. And they were in they were in studies, so they had been explained what cognition is and they understood all of those things. And they would ask me what they could do. And when I would speak with attending physicians, because it was also my job to give a little bit of indication, for example, one of my patients um, experienced symptoms that were um, likened to Parkinson's. So I needed to explain to the attending physician that they had developed what I felt was Parkinson's, which, which was true. Um, and other patients that were developing aphasia or just talking about the progression with the doctors and then asking them, what do we do about cognitive problems? And the majority of the answers that I was getting for, from rehabilitation specialists and, um, and attending physicians was, well, we can only do so much. Neuroplasticity is not something that is a brand new concept, but it is still controversial in the sense that a lot of people still have the impression that a lot of people, a lot of scientists still have the impression that you could only recover until a certain point. And that probably is true. However, we do know that we can create recovery beyond what is, um, what is currently offered. So I kept asking my patients, well, what are you doing instead? And a lot of them were gaming. And I was like, why, why you guys are, you guys are gaming, you know, like how cool is that? Uh, but everyone, every age loves, you know, loves fun and games. And um, it was for me then sort of this weird idea one night where I was laying in the, you know, that half asleep, half awake mode. And I was scrolling through my Instagram, a friend of mine who I had met through modeling happened to be the president of Sony Digital. And that was when they had just come out with their VR. And he was doing all of this great work. He had been posting about it. And I just had this like foggy falling asleep idea of what if we used VR instead of just typical games to rehabilitate individuals that have suffered from an acquired brain injury. Um, and specifically in the cognitive domain, as opposed to physical rehabilitation, because that's generally what's covered. You get your physical rehabilitation, it's adequately seen for, but about one in 10 patients will receive cognitive rehabilitation. So started, you know, in the morning, first thing I did was go to my computer and started looking up um, peer-reviewed papers about whether or not anyone had been doing this. and there were only a couple of research groups that had started, but then they um, they were suggesting in every paper more research needs to be done, more applications need to be developed. So I was like, okay, well, I can I can maybe do that. Uh, I was I was still really devastated. Uh, I don't think that we've discussed this, but I began preparations for my PhD in the same lab uh, at Oxford, and I was 
several months in when Brexit happened and about eight of us from my group lost our funding. So it was, even though it wasn't clear what Brexit was going to entail at that point, it was clear enough to the department that we didn't know whether EU students were going to have funding for the duration of their entirety of their PhDs. So I came back and I was really devastated. That's sort of when I had this, this idea, uh, fast forward. I didn't know how to make it come to fruition, except for to go, um, to go and start doing more research about it and starting to put together a research proposal. So that's, that's basically what I was doing. And in the meantime, a friend of mine had a conversation with me. It was just like a general one. Like if you could meet anyone in the world and have lunch with them, who would it be? And I said, um, Professor Dr. Eric Scherder, who I had written the book with. And my friend was like, why? You, you can meet with him anytime you want. You can start a book together. And I'm like, I know, but I talk with him on a different level. He's, um, he's someone that, because our listeners aren't going to be from the Netherlands, most probably, mostly, some, we might have some, um, he is a very big public figure here. And I love that he had been able to blend science with being a public figure. So he never, ever gave me flack for having been a model in my past. He never, ever made me feel less than anything he would always um he's, he's just a really really wonderful person so I wanted to know like how did you manage to combine your career in that way how did you manage to be able to take your research and then convey it to the public in such you know such a wonderful manner unbeknownst to me uh this friend writes to him and asked if he would like to have lunch with me and that they would cover the lunch because I was depressed and <laughs> having a really hard time trying to figure out what to do with my life. And um, he accepted and offered me a PhD position during the lunch. But the catch was that we didn't have funding and I didn't like uh, the grant process. We applied for two grants and I was like, this is lengthy and tedious. This is again where my connections from modeling, um, and then we didn't talk about my marketing career. I went on later on to, to work as director of marketing and PR for a firm in Shanghai, Hong Kong, and Tokyo. This was really where I was like, I can seek venture capital funding for my research and create a product because this is something that is needed. It's not just research that I wanna do. This is something that is actually needed in practice. And so after clearing up all of the legal issues and making sure that scientific integrity would be upheld, um, being that I'm gonna own a company and then do my research under the umbrella of my own company. Um, obviously you can understand how biases could be introduced there, but we made sure that we did all of our checks and balances to uphold our scientific integrity. And then there I went, started off with myself and another individual in the basement of, of the Wu University Amsterdam. And now I have, uh, I think we've got 12, 12 employees at the moment. So not a huge company, but definitely getting up there in the center of Amsterdam. So it really, it took off in four years from just being PhD research to so, so, so much more. 
And a dream of uh, mine was to have other PhD candidates um, also utilizing the software I developed in order to complete their PhDs. So now I think that there are four different candidates that are using my software from the, the current research group that I'm in. And even uh, might even be mistaken, there might be even more. They're investigating, there's two of them uh, or three of them, they're currently investigating how the software works with children who have had open heart surgery and congenital heart disease. We did a study recently with individuals who had brain fog from COVID as a result of being induced into comas um, during their ICU stay. So they had post ICU syndrome. And it was, it was really interesting. It's been really interesting to see how, even though I had originally designed this for one patient population, um, of course I did think that it would be possible. Maybe that it's, uh, you know, that it's generalizable or, or transferable to other clinical populations, but I wasn't sure. And it, it seems that that's what's happening organically. Uh, it, was, it was not my idea, but just had another talk um, this week with a, a group that does wonderful, wonderful work for uh, individual, like for the youth, for, for adolescents and for youth who have psychiatric and behavioral issues. And I hadn't ever really expected that people would be contacting us you know, and being like, we're interested in testing out or using your software. Um, it was just really like this crazy idea I had, like, this is how I'm going to fund my PhD. <laughs> and I, I really like now as I'm like sitting here, I'm like, I don't know what I was thinking. Um, I put a lot onto my plate, but I do still have a huge passion for what I do every single time. I get to interact with individuals who have experienced the software or especially those who are using VR for the first time. It's really, really cool. And then of course, I can't take the credit for myself. I have an amazing team. I have a team of researchers, developers, artists, um, and a management team and, and people that do a wonderful job with our marketing. So this was a huge joint effort in the end. And then my PhD research sort of sits a little bit to the side of that because I have to, again, uphold scientific integrity. And it's, it's weird, you know, it's definitely weird because you're, you're running the company, uh, but then in the same sense, you're actually underneath someone's supervision at a university who is telling you to do this and do that with your software. And there, there's a fine balance there, but um, I, yeah, I'm still really passionate about it. I, I still don't think that it was a bad idea that I did it this way. It was just a very unique and strange way because a lot yeah, of it's people, incredible. Yeah, I don't know about that, but thank you. <laughs> um, a lot of people take their research and they'll valorize it after they're completed with their PhDs, but not before. I've never heard of anyone that did it before. So it's, it's a unique journey. And the only thing I'd say that is a little bit frustrating is I don't have anyone to turn to who's done the same thing as me so that I can bounce off and reflect off of their ideas and sort of share in the trials and tribulations um, of, of what I've done. Um, people, people think that it's quote unquote, like I get like uh, told all the time, like, oh, this is very impressive. 
but I don't find it impressive at all. That's just me. I just, this is just, again, a different way that I think about things like solving problems in a certain way. It was just like, oh, the grant process is really slow. It's also slow to gain money from venture capitalists, but um, I felt that I had the connections from modeling, from marketing, and that I could do something like that. So that was the route that I, that I chose. It was, again, just piecing things together in my head. Um, at that point, I was also, I was living in between a car and a small closet. So I was really, really ambitious about getting this project started and not going and working um, not that there's anything wrong with it, but not going and working at a shop or something after I had just done a degree at Oxford. <laughs> and I thought, you know, um, I can hang hang in there, hang in there. And eventually everything came to fruition the way that it was supposed to. And what would you say to young individuals who would not, I wouldn't say necessarily follow your path, because obviously I believe everyone has their own path in life, but um who wants, who are keen to wanting to create an impact? I would say the first thing is don't be afraid of failure. There's been so many times in my life that I failed. And those were the moments that brought out the most perseverance and tenacity in me. We all fail in life and it hurts and it sucks. But through those moments, you can find a lot of strength and a lot of drive to move forward or you can crumble. And I think that people should take those failures and move forward, keeping in mind that anything is possible. And again, as I said, you don't have to be the smartest, the most talented, the best to succeed uh, at something. You just have to have that drive and that perseverance to continue. So I'd say dream big, um, keep keep your uh keep your your dreams big it is a silly childhood thing to say anything is possible but really it is you know from from my perspective look at your strengths and weaknesses and know them and identify your values and how they would all fit together to lead to a fulfilling career for you because not everyone is a workaholic like me a lot of people would more overvalue having a lot more free time uh, and from, you know, from that perspective, knowing your strengths, weaknesses, and what your values that are leading to a happy career, don't compartmentalize those. Most of your strengths could be sort of generalized and applied to, to different areas. Like me being stubborn equals me being very detail oriented. Um, th these are the types of things that I mean. So even if you feel like something is a weakness of yours, you can turn it into a strength and, you know, I would like, it's cheesy, but, and I'm like, you can make it a neuro reality. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely something that I want people to understand that you, you can complete anything that you put your mind to. And if you don't, that's also okay. That's an incredible way to think about it and that your weaknesses could also be strengths. And because sometimes we put ourselves down for things that, you know, other people may think are not, I guess, applicable to the whatever norm. But then when you utilize that, it could really be a strength and it could really be utilized for something amazing and for something like making an impact for the world around us. So thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> 
by the way, <laughs> the game that we produce uh, is called Koji's Quest. Um, my other Rottweiler that I rehabilitated was named Mojo. This is Koji, who's working at us right now, um, who's the namesake of our game. So Koji's Quest is a combination of oh, Mojo that's and so Kenny. Cool. <laughs> And there's a virtual companion in there that's a doggy um, who actually guides you through the game and gives you instructions on what to do. So I just to bring that in there, since he's joining in our conversation, <laughs> he's, the, he's the namesake of how, how the, the game got got to be called what it is. He needs to have some attention in every, in every aspect of your life. Such a love, but he is. He deserves it. He's a toddler. Yeah. And he has about the... The mental, I think that uh, scientific research has shown that dogs have about the capacity of a three to five year old. So <laughs> that's how he acts. And also to wind down everything, I want to ask a different question. What would you ask yourself that I haven't asked you? <laughs> Girl, put me on the spot there. Um, <laughs> what would I ask myself? Um, <laughs> that's, such a, that's such a good question I don't think that I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before <laughs> I think that I I might ask um what are your next steps um where where do you see yourself in you know heading in in the future in five years uh 10 years from now um for me even though as I said I'm a workaholic family is really important so I see myself still building a family. Uh, I see myself hopefully being a serial entrepreneur because I have at least like 20 other ideas in my head that are burning to get out. Um, but I think that currently a company and a joint PhD in two subjects is enough uh, and lecturing and writing and all of the things that I do. So, and taking care of my, my baby monster. Um, but I, I really in the future want to have more downtime to, to put into the endeavors that I want to, uh, but then keep my value system a little bit more at heart. I tell everyone else to keep their value system at heart and aligned with their careers, but then I often lack, lack that the ability to do the same. Kenji, really. <laughs> I'm sorry, listeners. No, I, I, hopefully you guys like dogs, but he's, <laughs> he's got a, a, a loud bark and he's definitely a, a talker. I love this um, conversation and I learned so, so much from you. Thank you so much for allowing yourself to share your experiencing your experiences and allowing yourself to be vulnerable. And, you know, we talked a lot about your modeling career and we also dove a lot into autism and um, how it has impacted you as an individual and as a scientist and the the importance of addressing it and really destigmatizing the things that that come with it and um, we also talked a lot about your your project and your company neuroreality and what what brought it to light and uh, we talked a lot about your experiences in a, as an individual and I admire you so much for your strength and um, I learned so much from you from you so thank you so much thank you Rima it's been an absolute pleasure thank you everyone for listening in this episode we talked to Fabiola Dadis. I'll see you in the next one mm-hmm.